You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Jim Rogers, thank you for coming on The Big Trade series. It's been about a year since you were last on, and, and thank you for coming on again to discuss with me. Um, as you know, I, we wanted to uh, try to meet up with each other, but unfortunately this time we're not able to do so because I believe you're heading to Colombia. Yes, Peter, I'm delighted to be here. It's good to see you again. And I am about to head off to Medellin. Medellin, which used to be the center of drug strife and civil war and horrible things, is now one of the most exciting cities in the world. Are, are you going there for conferences or looking at some interesting opportunities? Well, I'm going there to speak, but I'm speaking for a group, which is an extremely interesting opportunity as far as I'm concerned. Okay, very interesting. So, Jim, um, when I met up with you um, about a year ago, I was probably about maybe one or two years in my U.S. dollar long position. And I know that um, as of maybe the last um, at least year or so, I've heard that you've also have been allocating a lot of your... Uh, capital into the U.S. dollar. Um, w one of the reasons why I liked it at that time was I, I found it to be like a synthetic short and it allowed me, because um, I started my hedge fund about maybe one or two years ago, and it allowed me to get exposure into that short position on U.S. equities and allowed me to not have to try to take long positions on U.S. equities and obtain some kind of capital gain during that whole process. And obviously, as you said, it's it's like a way that people might perceive as a safe haven, even though it's not. But most of this year, actually, the U.S. dollar hasn't been looking so spectacular, and I'm sure that has to do with the, the rate in which uh, interest rates are rising. Um, how do you feel about that? And I, I know probably you're going to be thinking about this more from a long-term perspective, but I'd love to hear more about your thesis on that as well and how you've been able to address the position and how it's been going on for, um, say, since December of this year. Uh, well, I, the U.S. dollar has done well against some currencies. Uh, right. Against others, it hasn't, as you rightfully point out. Uh, the currencies were beaten down so much, like the yen and the, the euro, et cetera, that they've been rallying. Mm -hmm. uh, I still own U.S. dollars. Uh, my, I own the Chinese currency. Mm -hmm. well. I own a smattering of other currencies, but I still own the dollar on the theory, Peter, that uh, there's going to be more turmoil in the world and many people are going to seek a safe haven. Mm -hmm. The U.S. dollar is a terribly flawed currency. It is not a safe haven, but it is perceived that way. And when the, ter currency, when the turmoil gets worse, many people will flee to the U.S. dollar. I hope that I'm smart enough that when it gets overpriced and maybe even turns into a bubble, I hope I'm smart enough to sell it. Do you find yourself, um, I don't know the weighting that you have in your, your positions, but do you find yourself sometimes thinking about um, like the, the relationship or the correlations or, or discorrelations of your U.S. dollar position and your other long um, currency holdings such as like the the renminbi like how how is there a world in which both are um, appreciating well the renminbi has been the strongest currency in the world over the past 10 or 11 years right. uh, it, it is it is weakened against the US dollar mm -hmm. uh, 
me say, but it's still very strong against nearly all currencies in the world. Uh, it is now the U.S. dollar in recent months has, has been strong. Well, I'm not even sure that's true as of this week, but certainly the U.S. dollar has was stronger against the renminbi for a while. But no, I don't pay too much attention, Peter. I don't have any clients. You yeah. have clients you have to worry about. You have to report. Yeah. I don't. I usually don't even know much less care how I'm doing unless something goes really wrong. What I've also been thinking about, Jim, is because of this, um, uh, you know, significant appreciation of the U.S. dollar. I've actually been looking at some other currencies that seem to me to be a little bit um, uh, overextended in terms of their decline. And over the last several months, I've been seeing some of these currencies do quite well, um, like the Kiwi dollar, um, particularly as one of them. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, like, you know. Uh, countries in which you're actually hearing about the rate of interest rate hikes um, being beneficial to the currency to some extent. Well, interest rate hikes often have been, uh, been beneficial, at least in the short term, because mm -hmm. they are high and earn more money. Uh, it's, the fundamentals, though, in the end, went out. Mm -hmm. you interest rate, sometimes you have to raise interest rates five or ten times right. to really make any kind of significant difference. Uh, I, I I bought rubles recently. You yes. were of beating down currencies. What I well, what I actually did was I bought short-term Russian government bonds in rubles. Right. At a high interest rate, and if I get if the ruble goes up, I'll get a double play. If the ruble goes down, of course, I'll, I won't get a double play. Uh, but that's about the only thing that I have bought recently along the lines of what you're discussing. You know what was interesting? I remember distinctly on the day that I was um, with you and um, we were talking about Russia and actually you had kind of just walked away from the conversation because you had to get to your trading desk and I think you were indicating at that moment that you were really interested in at least something related to Russia. I didn't know that it ended up being um, the kind of position that you took but um, I do remember that happening distinctly. That the Russian ruble government bonds that I bought, and I bought two-year government bonds. Right. That was only a couple of weeks ago. Okay. So I, what it may have been back then, the company in which I'm a director. Yes, the I, agriculture. Yes, the fertilizer company. Uh, I think it was probably that I bought more shares. It's called Fox Agro. I right. think it's listed in London. And by the way, it's astonishing because Fox Agro is near its all-time high. Yes. All the stuff you hear about Russia, etc. So, uh, all time high in, in U.S. dollars, but I think that's probably what what you're referring to. Okay, so Jim, that's going to make a great segue to um, all this discussion about agriculture. You've been quoted in discussing about how China uh, will basically do everything to support that industry, and you know how the government will provide a lot of incentives for that. Um, I want to propose to you, Jim, because we talked about this um, once or twice before. Is as as you know, I'm a big advocate of um, the Vietnam capital markets, and um, you know we're actually looking at some projects related to the agricultural space here in Vietnam. You actually, in the last um, conversation that we had, had discussed about like you know um, how people here in Vietnam should take advantage of that agricultural space and. I've actually done taken the liberties to look into that, and it's it's a fantastic um, market because like somewhere like Singapore where you reside in is primarily importing most of its agricultural 
uh, foods from places like China and Malaysia. But um, Singapore actually has set up a food processing zone in China, but it's actually been very inefficient and it's actually been considered somewhat of a, a failure due to all the delays that that project has had. Um, I'm here to make a case to you, Jim, that in Vietnam and certain areas in Vietnam are very attractive for agriculture. The market's a little bit more inefficient. The, the, you know, the land lease uh, rights is pretty much the same like in China, but it's arguably cheaper. Um, some of the environmental factors, geographical factors, are, um, allow for year-round um, growing and yields of um, agricultural products. And Singapore actually has a strategic partnership with Vietnam as well. I think that's a fantastic um, uh, space for you to look into. And it's not like Vietnam hasn't been exporting agricultural products to begin with for the last several years anyways. Well, Vietnam, uh, agriculture in many places yes. in the world has a great future, and Vietnam is clearly one of them. There's no question about that. Yeah. Uh, just, I mentioned China before because the Chinese government is giving huge incentives to develop the countryside and agriculture, which has been a disaster. You know, Mao Zedong ruined China in many ways, including yes. agriculture. Well, they've got a problem, and they know it. But agriculture worldwide has a great future and certainly including Vietnam. Yes. Um, all the incentives that you talk about, I also see a lot of similarity and patterns like that also in places like Vietnam as well. But I also feel as if um, because it's a smaller market, significantly smaller market than China, that um, the FDI, a foreign direct investment into this industry um, is actually less, um, th there's actually less of it. And therefore, I believe that there's a lot of opportunities and inefficiencies that exist, in addition to all the, um, you know, uh, potential margins that you could capture from labor costs, land costs, um, and just kind of like um, capitalizing on the inefficiencies um, and the potential restructuring of the industry as well. Well, for many historic reasons, there are certainly many kinds of opportunities, especially in agriculture in Vietnam. There's no question about that. Yes, yes. All right, so we, we just discussed about agriculture so far. We've talked about U.S. dollar because you mentioned the agriculture company you're invested in. I um, wanted to come back to some macro things such as um, the trend of debt, right? Over the last several years, there's probably no greater trend, no consistent trend, um, compared to this, this whole great debt. Um, as you know, the world's now about $200 trillion in debt. Places that you like a lot as well, like China has quadrupled in debt since uh, the financial crisis. Um, first off, like, what do you think about that? I know you discussed about that a lot. And what are ways that investors can look into this trend? Because I think that that's one of the only certainties that we have left. Well, for many, uh historic reasons, China has not had much debt yeah. until the last decade. Uh, in, in 2008, when the world collapsed, <coughs> China had a lot of money saved for a rainy day. It started raining and they started spending it and right. helping out the world. Now, China has increased debt itself. They have debt, which is unusual, at least on a historic basis. Mm -hmm. And next time around, it's going to cause problems. It's going to surprise a lot of people, including the Chinese. You will have, at least the government says, they're going to let people go bankrupt, and I hope they mean it. Mm -hmm. uh, but China's not as bad as the U.S. or Italy or 
or Portugal or the UK or some other countries. But you're exactly right, though. The world is going to be, the next time we have economic problems, they're going to be worse because the, the debt everywhere is much, much higher than it was even in 2008. Are, are, what are the best ways, you think, then, to, like, if, if we recognize this as a trend, does, does any kind of, like, position or, or investment or short uh, come to mind when you think about that thesis? Well, learn how to sell short is the first, uh, first step. And, <laughs> uh, learn how to short bonds, uh, certainly junk bonds, short junk bonds at the moment. I am not short bonds otherwise. Mm -hmm. There would be a time when I hope I'm smart enough to short bonds too again. Uh, but at the moment, I'm just short junk bonds. We're going to be great opportunity, but it's going to be great opportunity shorting stocks as well in the, in the foreseeable future. Do you see any merit in um, some companies? Uh, surprisingly, post two thousand seven, have actually worked towards deleveraging. I'm not saying all of them are like ideal situations, like Argentina. But there are uh, countries like Romania, Egypt, Israel, Saudi Arabia that actually have been um, deleveraging to some extent. Is there any merit in, in looking at, at those kind of countries that might be doing some deleveraging? I'm sorry, you said Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia's debt is going through the roof. It, it is, but uh, post-2007, um, in terms of percentage points, it's actually declined slightly. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 maybe it's an opportunity. I, I, for me, it's not. Uh, sure, yes, anybody who is going to go into and come out of this, this next uh, turmoil, right. less leverage is going to be in a better position. It will come out the other side much better off. Mm -hmm. Most people are going into the problem with higher debt, and many of them will come out the other side with even more debt. And you mentioned Argentina. Yeah. Well, Argentina's Argentina got less debt, so nobody will lend the money. Cause <laughs> exactly, exactly. Some of them are... I, I'm not sure I consider that a uh, positive in the case of Argentina, although the new guy does seem to be much better and, have, and know what's going on and, and to be doing things right. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, it's, it's just unfortunately, like, you know, we have to be uh, pragmatic to what's going on in the world. It's not going to be like a country with very, very little debt you actually have to just look at countries maybe with declining debt to some extent in terms of percentage points relative to, you know, say a particular starting point like 2007 or in terms of uh, currencies, as you know, not all of them or actually very few of them are even ideal to begin with. And you're kind of just dealing with where they're at in terms of their uh, business cycle. So it's it's just it's just kind of like the world we live in and and you know I'm trying to just think of some ideas and outside the box perspectives that might allow say for example the audience to to think about in terms of these aspects well when the, when there's a problem in markets when there's a bear market for instance mm -hmm. what make a lot of money coming out the other side is to own the companies and the stocks that came through the period uh, unimpaired, the companies whose earnings keep going up through the hard times, those are the companies which lead the recovery on the other side. So whoever it is, whatever it is, if you can find people that will pass the test, is one way to look at it, the mm -hmm. test of hard times, you find those entities and those are the ones that lead coming out the other side. Right, right. 
So Jim, I've heard you discuss a lot about um, shorting some of those stocks that have done very well, uh, particularly in the, the U.S. equity markets. It, it seems to me like, um, correct me if I'm wrong, like, is, is it fair to say that that's kind of like one of your strategies to identify maybe the peak of a market? Because you've, you've discussed about previously how um, in markets, part of the phase of a particular index is that um, you'll only have a few remaining stocks that are basically uh, supporting the rest of the market due to its, I guess, market weight. And ultimately, those would also start to decline. And therefore, that could lead to some kind of potential bear markets to some extent. Is that kind of your, your thinking towards that approach? I'm just grabbing different sound bites from everything I'm hearing you're discussing about all over the place and trying to understand what's being said there. Well, often you find in markets that the marginal companies start going down, the stocks start going down first, and in the end it's really only a few generals that are leading the charge. And most stocks are going down, but since the generals are big and, uh, and very publicly obvious, mm -hmm. uh, they hold the market up and the people think everything is okay with the breadth, the advanced decline line is deteriorating. Right. I've seen it happen many times in the past. It has been happening in the U.S. in the last year or two. Last year, only one-third of stocks on the New York Stock Exchange were up. Twice as many stocks were down as up on the New York Stock Exchange, and yet people think the, the, the stock market in New York did okay last year. It didn't, unless you happen to own the few stocks which were holding up the averages. And normally, or often, when that kind of situation develops, eventually those generals go too, and that is the final stage. That's when you have the collapse, the capitulation, the panic. It doesn't always work, obviously, but that has often been the case. So, so I guess that's the the perspective that you're trying to take, right? In in which is why you're shorting some of these um, bigger companies. Yes, uh, those companies have never they never go down, uh, and normally, as I said, historically, in the end, those are the ones that lead the final collapse down. It's happened in my uh, stock market history in the last four years, and I'm sure other people have experienced the same thing. And certainly, if you go back and read your history, you will see it's often the case. In the early 1970s, for instance, in, in New York, there was something called the Nifty 50. Mm -hmm. 50 stocks that, quote, never went down. J.P. Morgan would buy them every day, and all those kind of institutions would buy them every day on the theory that their earnings would never go down. They would always grow. Well, mm -hmm. those stocks held up until the very end, but in the very end, boy, did they go down, they totally collapsed. And, but you also discussed just earlier about those companies that are going to do very, like say the ones that did well in the previous cycle could be one of the ultimate benefactors on um, you know, a resurgence back into equities. Is that where you're looking at the secular trend of some of these companies? Hypothetically, let's say there was this agriculture company that you really like, let's say in Russia, for example, and then um, you know Russian equities start to decline quite uh, precipitously. Um, are, are you trying to say that because there's a secular trend for the underlining fundamentals of that business, that it would still be interesting to think about how you could reposition yourself on some potential, uh, you know, 
uh, surge in the stock market? Well, normally, if you look and find a company that's going to go through uh, a hard time, come out the other side unimpaired, mm -hmm. yet there's obviously a secular trend for that industry, or they would have troubles like everybody else. So yes, it's part you. You the secular trend has to be in your favor, or it's unlikely that the company will come through uh, untouched. Do you think um, we as humans are smart enough to identify what a secular trend is at the moment? Like you could argue, like you know, information technology stocks, say in the two thousands, were a secular trend. In fact, they still are, right? But they a lot of them experienced um, a lot of declines. Like, is is are we trying to are, are we trying to like rationalize these positions or try to explain them based on you know past performance or what they could look like in the future? Well, clearly you have to have the secular trend in your favor, but then there's a lot more. There's management, there's competition, there's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's debt, lack of debt, manufacturing efficiencies. So right, you, right. The secular trend needs to be in your favor, but that does not mean people cannot fail. Uh, just because they're in the right business at the right time. Many dot-com companies failed. I mean, dot-com did not go away. The Internet has not gone away. In fact, if anything, it's extraordinary how much the Internet has grown in the past 15 or 20 years. But yeah. a lot of those dot-com companies that were selling at absurd prices have disappeared. Right, right. So, Jim, you've um, uh, constructed quite a few indexes in your lifetime. Um, we, I'm actually working on the construction of an index for Vietnam. I just signed an agreement with Standard & Poor's to be our index calculator. Um, it's for the market here in Vietnam. Um, the reason why I created it is that obviously we want to um, try to um, create something for foreign investors that would allow them the ability to invest in markets where there's a lot of like capital controls and foreign ownership restrictions. So I actually made like an equal weight index and that one of the reasons is like unlike in China they have like class A, class B shares. In Vietnam they just have a percentage limit in how much foreigners can own of a particular stock. So therefore by equal weighting it, it takes away less emphasis on too much market weight on a particular equity and it gives you kind of like, um, you know, a benchmark uh, for you to get some exposure into these markets. Another reason why I like it is that it helps um, address some of the issues in terms of the float that state-owned enterprises have. Typically in countries like China and Vietnam is that they're going to want to float on the market companies that, you know, state-owned enterprises that might not be so spectacular. So. Whereas the good companies, you're going to have less float of into the stock market. Um, first off, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But secondly, is um, when constructing an index like you've done for some of these ones, um, and when discussing about like how you're trying to address these stocks that are doing well in in markets that um, that are in bull market phases, what do you think one needs to consider when constructing some kind of index? Well, it sounds to me like you're you have, you have taken into consideration most of the things that one needs to, to be aware of for a good index, uh, especially in a place that's somewhat limited, like Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam doesn't have 2,000 high-quality big stocks. Yes. Uh, meaning for some, the U.S. does, for instance, or high enough quality. So, but for somebody like 
the, the US, uh, Vietnam, you've got to be selected to do the index right. It sounds to me like you're doing it. I mean, I'm not familiar enough with Vietnam to, to be too specific, but your description sounds great. Yeah, I, I think that the, these are some of the factors. I think that the the, the way, the manner in which we construct the index is applicable to many of these frontier and emerging markets. Issues are like foreign ownership restrictions, uh, the magnitude of state-owned enterprises and their influence on the market capitalization weight of the actual index itself, um, the liquidity issues in having um, like, you know, there's only a limited amount of companies that truly are liquid in some of these markets. And I think by having the equal weighting, it's a simple but relatively elegant solution to that. So um, I'd love to discuss with you more about that sometime soon. The index is going to go live um, in mid-April, which is actually a very short period of time from now. Uh, but, but I know that you've created a lot of indexes. You've created one that's focused on global resources. Could you describe to me about like how that is calculated to some extent? Well, what you, it depends on the, the perceived needs of the market or the real needs of the market. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if in that particular case, if people wanted to invest in natural resources, but they did not want to invest in commodities themselves, uh, you have the, the, the key is to find liquid, recognized names that are tradable and so people can hedge. Yes. People need to be able to, to hedge positions if they want to. And you need to have names that are internationally recognized and big enough to trade. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how does your uh, global resource index um, reflect all of these different pots, like like agriculture and everything that you're trying to address? Does does it do that, or, or yes, yes, no, it, it, we we take the various uh, natural resource sectors, whether it's agriculture or mining or energy, whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. and the major companies with a major trading volume and turn it into an index. I, I'd love to, we're, I'm in the process of trying to work on launching also an organic related index. I feel as if that's one of the secular trends within the agricultural space um, that could be really interesting. And Jim, believe it or not, nothing like that exists so far that I know of. Well, that may be, how many organic, are there enough organic, and I don't know, I'm yeah. asking. Enough organic companies to have a viable index. Um, probably pretty big. Basically, for example, depending on the criteria that you set. So, for example, um, where within the value chain um, the, these organic-based companies would uh, be involved with, that would be one factor. And thinking about the magnitude of exposure, like is Whole Foods an organic company to some extent? And we'd have to try to identify that. But if you take a look at Whole Foods and it's total market cap, that could be maybe one of the bigger companies, potentially. Um, we're still working on some of the, the, the criteria, but ultimately getting some kind of reflection on that would also be very compelling. Um, you know, right here, I, as I told you in Vietnam, I'm starting to eat a lot of organic foods, and basically it's so different from the kind of um, uh, inorganic processed food that we're getting um, around the world, actually. Well, there's no question that organic food is growing and growing rapidly worldwide. Part of it is there's so many polluted countries and soils and water and air. So, yeah, organic, if you can find competitive and efficient producers, yeah, they probably have a very good future. 
Yeah. The world is cleaned up, but it's going to take a long time to clean up the world. Yeah. And for anyone that's kind of like lazy and just wants to sit around their desk and trade or make investments, I think that could be a, a nice product and tool for people to um, get it some exposure to. So that's just my um, rationale. Um, so I, I, as we talked about Russia earlier, and you, you're talking about the continuous, um, I guess, interdependence or codependence of China and Russia. Like, how do you see the relationship evolving, and what are the uh, significant ramifications that we could expect out of this, and where are the opportunities there? Well, they happen to be geographically next to each other, and that doesn't necessarily matter because. For instance, there have been times in history when they have been totally at odds and not cooperated at all. Right. Just out of a period like that. But now, for whatever reason, well, no, not whatever reason, the Americans are forcing the Chinese and the Russians closer together. So there are many, many huge trading opportunities. The Russians have vast natural resources. The Chinese have vast population. Mm. So there's a huge uh, synergy between the two. And that's coming closer and closer together. The Russians and the Chinese are going to trade more. The Chinese have a lot of capital. The Russians have capital too, but they they can help uh, fund each other. Given that the West is pulling away from Russia, so there are many many synergies. Uh, and I hate saying it, there are many synergies being forced upon them because of the absurdity of the U.S. government. But facts are facts, and so it's happening. One of the positions that I tried to take to, to benefit from that thesis was um, Gazprom prior to the signing of some of those big agreements, trade agreements with China. And it seemed as if um, what investors were concerned about was the magnitude of the sizes of the agreements, uh, assuming that Gazprom wasn't going to be doing as much business with Europe as they were with uh, China in the future. Unfortunately, um, that position didn't do as well. Um, the valuations in the company were attractive, but but that that was one of the experiences that I had trying to dabble into this thesis. But it it didn't kind of work the way, or maybe I'm a little too impatient, actually. Well, I, I don't know what I don't know the details. So I'll, you said it didn't work. I don't know why. Because I again, I don't know the details. But there have I mean, Fast Agro, this company I'm a director of. Stocks making all-time highs, sales going through the roof, earnings going through the roof. So it, it can work. Doesn't mean it's going to work in the future for Boss Agro, but it has worked so far. So there are examples where it works. And and they are um, some of what are is there fertilizer being exported to China, or the fertilizer is helping grow foods that are being exported to China? Do you have any idea? China China actually produces fertilizer itself. Okay. As well, but given the growth of China, they're they're not exporting or not producing as much as they used to. Remember, China's growing all the time. Right. They need even if they produce eggs themselves. That means and eat the eggs themselves. That means there are fewer eggs on the world market. So the other egg producers do better. Right. Right. So Jim, yeah, let's let's try to wrap this up in a bit. But I, I wanted to ask you. Uh, uh, two things that I've never really heard you discuss about that much, but um, uh, one is TPP. What are your thoughts on the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Well, I don't really know enough about it. Part of mm. it could have been secret, as you know, which yes. is a little bit absurd for people who are citizens of the land of the free. 
Right. You know, government won't tell us what's going on. Uh, but the basic answer is freer trade, open trade is better for the world. It's always better for the world when you open markets. Are, are you concerned when politicians and bureaucrats are the ones that are constructing the free trade agreements? Because that's one of been your criticisms about central banks. I'm concerned when politicians do anything. <laughs> competent politicians ever in history. Right. But I'd rather them open it up badly than not open it at all or better to close it. Right, right, right. And... Um, there's this this idea that I've been thinking about, and I've read this recently. It's it's um, a book called um, the the Fourth Economy, and the the idea is basically in the 1700s we were in a land based economy. In the 20th century, we're obviously in the Industrial Revolution and a capital based economy, and in the 21st century we're in a knowledge based economy. This is all self explanatory, but. In a knowledge-based economy, and, and you always talk about one having to educate themselves a lot, like what, in terms of capital markets and you're investing in large companies, is there, and you're using capital to do so, is there some kind of disconnect that's happening because we're living in a knowledge-based economy, then, you know, why are we still using, you know, investing in companies and using capital to do so? Even in a knowledge-based economy, somebody's got to turn on the lights. Right. Somebody's got to turn on the telephone, even if it's an iPhone. Right. So you need capital, and you need to pay people to come to work. So <clears throat> capital is necessary no matter what. There's different kinds of capital, but in, in service industries, cash money is yep. capital. It may not be a machine, a big uh, machine or tractor or something, but it's you. You do have some some. Capital equipment, kinds of necessities. It, it sounds like you yourself is also like evolving as well, right? I heard that you you you've actually explored on how to actually drive a tractor, and and like it, it are is your like investment criteria evolving as well? And are you looking into different kind of things than what you've been doing over say the last several years? Well, I hope that I'm smart enough to always change when the world changes. Mm -hmm. the world changes, I hope I've changed with it, and the world is always changing. No matter what you think is true today, it's not going to be true in 15 years. And that has been true throughout history. If you go to any, pick a year, 1910. Right. See what people thought in 1910. 15 years later, the world was totally different. Right, right. 15 years later, the world was totally different. So. The world is constantly changing. I hope I can change with it. So, Jim, give me um, an idea on your daily routine, because you're, you know, when I watch you in some interviews, we see you often on the treadmill um, quite a bit. Well, what is your daily routine routine like for a typical day of Joe Rogers? Well, if I'm in town, I take my children to school on a bicycle, mm -hmm. uh, and I I go to the gym. And I work out two or three hours, uh, and it depends on what else is happening. I do pick my children up if I'm in town. Mm -hmm. I will probably look at the markets and go to my computer or to see what's happening. But sometimes I have meetings. I try to have as few meetings as possible because they're, they're usually not terribly productive. Uh, right. And I spend as much time as I can with my children. Well, thank you. Okay, well, that's great, Jim. I don't know if you have any final words for anyone that's listening in. Just be very careful. The world's going to have some difficult times in the next couple of years. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. 
We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.